HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And I'm actually going to start today with a passage. Um, it seems befitting, uh, uh, once you actually hear what I'm about to read, that this isn't so much about visuals, though the cookbooks that we're about to talk about are very creatively designed. Go wrote them. Um, but this passage really, really kind of like strikes a chord, especially today where we're so, you know, social media obsessed. And with that, usually imagery is involved, um, that I'm holding something really, really fascinating, really heartwarming in my hands, short stack editions, uh, single subject, small format cookbooks. And what I'm about to read is a, a letter from the editors on their first round of editions, uh, Strawberries by Susan Spongen. There are times when it seems silly to hold on to every single cookbook and food magazine we come across. The last time we moved, the number of boxes we needed to pack up our culinary library was like something out of hoarders. But the doubt never remains for long. Anytime we think about what to make for lunch or how to use the strawberries we just scored at the market, our bookshelf becomes an indispensable chorus of old friends. Their suggestions indexed by past experiences. When it comes to cooking, wisdom, and inspiration, digital bookmarks can't compare with dog-eared, soft-stained pages. Caitlin Golan, editor of Short Stack Editions, and I think we have Nick Foshald, the publisher of All Day Media, which underneath that umbrella, Short Stack Editions, exists. Nick, you there? I'm here. Fantastic. Well, you know, reading something like that, you know, and, and, it, and it hits a chord, uh, in your in your heart, it's something that you not only 
remember, but want to reference always. And I, I feel like that's what short stack editions has really become in, in its short time, uh, you know, since its impetus. And so a, a big congratulations because I know what kind of long and arduous process it was to actually get these things in people's hands. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Um, so, Nick, I just wanted to start with you. I've known you for a long time in many different modes of media, uh, from print to digital, and you've always been a, a writer, uh, an editor, and entrepreneurial spirit. Publishing. Why? Why? Why is it such an important term to, you know, add to your business card? Uh, I guess publishing means you can you can make whatever the hell you want because um, ultimately you're the one putting it out. Um, I love working for other people. I love getting paid by other people. Uh, but when it's it's your own baby, then um, you get to make all the mistakes. You get to um, reap all the benefits, and it's kind of it's it's fun to be a little more autonomous, I guess. So Rachel Ray, Wine Spectator, Food and Wine, TastingTable.com, all these things that you've written for and worked with in the past, um, and cookbooks like Liara Lev Sakars's The Art of Blending, Sarah Jenkins' New Italian Pantry, uh, upcoming Death & Co., Joe & Carol. I think I, I nailed your resume, right? It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, all these things, what makes short sex different? Well, um, based on what I've been working on the last few years, they're, they're paper product. Uh, I started in print journalism. I worked in magazines for seven or eight years before uh, starting Tasting Table and going online. Um, and I really missed paper. Um, so we wanted to make something that you could hold in your hands, that you could put on your bookshelf, that you could wrap in, in wrapping paper and, and give to someone as a gift. Um, it's really fun working with paper. And, and there's a different set of skills and, and different way of thinking about things. Things have to sit on a page and look neat and pretty. And uh, it's a good change of pace based on what I've been doing for a couple, last two, three years, especially. So, Caitlin Golan, uh, your wonderful editor, is here in Studio 2. Feel free to chime in at any point. Um, you know, with the digital era upon us uh, kind of consuming us, in a sense, how important is it to slow down and have something tangible? Well, slow media, for, for one reason or another, has become this buzzword that we're using now. Um, I kind of hate it because I think um, – Print is still very much alive and, and, and thriving, especially when it comes to cooking and recipes. Um, I still, I'm the kind of person who will jot down a recipe or print one out if I find it uh, online somewhere and bring it to me to the kitchen. I, it's still not the guy who has his laptop or iPad or whatever um, next to the stove. And I think cookbooks, you know, in, in the in the book publishing world, Novels and nonfiction and, and books like that um, are losing lots and lots of ground to uh, e-readers and, and digital publishing. I think that's a totally fine thing. Um, it makes sense to want to carry a handful of novels with you and have it be super portable. But when it comes to cookbooks, uh, they're still doing really well in the printed format. And I think there's a really good reason why, and that's people keep cookbooks around for a long time and like to have them on the table or on their lap or bring them to bed or pass them down as an heirloom. So that's, uh, that's kind of why we, we wanted to get this, this thing down on paper. 
I think also um, a big um, push for for me and for Nick when we were first starting to talk about this, um, I, I in a lot of ways, my experience, our experience working in uh, digital platforms has only made it more of a certainty that cookbooks are going to stay in a printed format in the future. Um, and if anything, I think digital has provided a great um, opportunity for print publications, um, specifically cookbooks, to get even better. Um, I think it's forced people to become more curated about what they're writing about, to really come out with a point of view, um, to to really be thoughtful about what you're putting on the page, because you don't necessarily have to be in digital. There's, you know, it's, it's cheaper and it's um, not geographically limiting. Um, and so with Short Stack, we really wanted to create something that was really simple and really thoughtful. Um, and so, yeah, I think it only speaks um, towards good things about the future of print media. So, you know, I say single subject, and that could be uh, thought of as a thematic thing, you know, uh, some kind of like Spain or, or everything that has acidity. But really, the single subject is an ingredient. Um, your first three being strawberries, eggs, and tomatoes. Why single subject rather than having, you know, uh, um, I don't know, I, I wouldn't want to say a personality or, you know, a plethora of things underneath or bound? Because that's how we cook um, most of the time. We find something at the market or we think of the favorite ingredient we want to use and we go from there. We're not... Um, choosing what to eat for dinner based on someone's name or a country, usually. Uh, there was probably a time when people got really into what was then, you know, exotic cuisines, and people were cooking a lot more based on, on that, I'd say, in the 80s and, and even 90s. But now we're in an ingredient-driven food culture. We know what's good. We know, how to, we know where to get our ingredients. We know um, what they should taste like. So that's how we're cooking these days. I think it's also um, something that the authors can get super excited about. You know, each of these we sort of, um, when we're approaching authors and explaining to them what exactly this is, um, the the phrase love letter comes up a lot because it's really like, you know, pick an ingredient that you get freaking psyched about and want to just go nuts with. Um, and that's a lot easier to do, I think, with, you know, tomatoes versus something a little bit more abstract you know everyone can get behind the perfectly beautiful ripe tomato well, i always feel like yeah. nothing is more abstract than the egg itself <laughs> that, that's my deep fair, thought fair of the point. day <laughs> but looking at ian Knauer, who's been on the show who who is not only an author but a, a cook whose food and uh, you know verses i've always loved um seeing him tackle something as simple and as kind of enigmatic as the egg was, was a really fascinating you know um way of uh, or exercise to see how much you can actually do with a you know single ingredient um how did you approach ian and how did you actually start this project and did you vet out other ingredients to arrive at the egg well actually we started with the authors um we thought about really simply who who can create the best recipes who are the smartest recipe developers food authors chefs that we know and who can make something that are truly home cook friendly. Um, there are a lot of unsung heroes in you know the food publishing world. People that we work with in magazines and test kitchens and so on. And Ian is um, he started as one of those people at Gourmet Magazine, and now he is his own brand. I guess I mean he's 
got a TV show coming up this fall. He's got cookbooks. Um, Ian is someone I've, I've actually I'm sleeping in his spare bedroom right now as we speak. <laughs> Does uh, he know I'm that? Standing in his spare bedroom, <laughs> not sleeping. But um, uh, he's doing a dinner tonight in uh, in New Jersey, and uh, we'll be giving away copies of the books to everyone who comes in. Uh, anyway, we found these authors first, and, and Ian and, and Susan Spungen uh, were two people whose work I just absolutely admired. Um, I'd cooked so many of their recipes over the years, and they never failed me, so I went to them first. Uh, Caitlin felt the same way about Stella Davies, someone she'd known and worked with. So, and, and then when we told them about the project and said, pick an ingredient that you love, for each of them, there really was no hesitation. They spit out their their chosen ingredient almost immediately. Um, Ian's was a no-brainer. He'd been raising chickens and cooking with more eggs than he could count for a couple of years. Um, Susan had just started working on a giant strawberry project for, I think it was Bon Appetit, and she had all these leftover strawberries, which happened to be her favorite ingredient as well. So she jumped on that surplus. And Soa is a, an absolute tomato fanatic. So it's a really easy call. We're never going to try to pair or try to mandate an ingredient to one of the authors. We'll start with an author who we respect and who can give us perfect recipes and then let them you know, pick their, their favorite ingredient. Well, let's talk about the breakdown since you have an egg as you know the overall ingredient. With Ian's book, simply titled <laughs> Eggs, there are boiled, scrambled and fried, whipped turning the page. Uh-huh. You always want to turn these pages delicately because we'll talk about, you know, the handicraft. So like, you know how many is. people have touched that book before it got to you? Like, oh, oh, many. We counted. It's like 12 people have, have handled that thing. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to yeah. hold up. And sewn by CLP. But at the same time, I know, I know they're durable, but you want them to last. I mean, there, there's a reason why they, they feel delicate as, as well as durable because they, they are precious in, in the best way. That's, that was definitely a goal that they be as as functional as possible while still being as beautiful an object as possible. So you know you would cook from them and also want them on your shelf in you know an aesthetic way. So baked eggs, sauces, but aside from just those terms, I mean the inventiveness within that, like panzanella bread pudding underneath the baked egg dishes, uh, just seems like such a foreign but simple concept to me. It's it just so creative. It's like, you know, Midwest was, stratas. Yeah, that was sort of Ian's idea. Um, as, as he started developing recipes, I was asking him, you know, how do you want to structure this thing? Should we do the classic appetizers, first course, main course, dessert? Do you want to do breakfast, lunch, dinner? And he was thinking, well, you know, when I think about eggs, when, when I'm going to cook something, I usually go by technique. Am I going to scramble them? Am I going to boil them? Will I poach them, bake them? Um, and multiply them, and, and eggs lend themselves to so many techniques that we thought that was a really smart way to organize the book. Other books will be organized in completely different ways. We're letting each author kind of uh, drive the train that way. Well, again, and underneath then, whipped, I kind yeah, of love that there's pavlova and a, a fizz drink, you know, <laughs> in, in that same small chapter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, I mean, let's talk, um, let's talk about soil really quickly, too, because... You know, from from eggs to tomatoes, the recipe that was sent to me that I posted on my website and will hopefully post on Heritage website is a meat replacement in a sense, but not really a meat replacement. It yeah, it's is, actually vegan too. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a tomato and green olive like tartare. Mm-hmm. And 
again, you know, to have something as simple as a tomato and have such technique as simple as that, but it be so conceptually genius. That's what these recipes have also brought to the table. Definitely. I think it's the perfect example of, you know, that perfect storm of um, ease and simplicity. I mean, there, I think it's like six ingredients in that. It takes five minutes to throw together, but it's something that certainly I had never really thought about um, with tomatoes. And, um, you know, I think hopefully it's like a really nice surprise to find a recipe in these books that is so easy to pull together, um, but also something you've never had before. And so, and that kind of speaks to her, her approach to cooking. She's a chef first and foremost. She worked in kitchens um, uh, all over the country, especially in, in Liberta Den for many years. And she can think about ingredients um, and, and how to combine them in ways that most of us can't. So, you know, she, she has a lot of little tricks up her sleeve that, um, she put into these recipes, and that's why they, a lot of them are just seem so, so brilliantly simple. Um, there's something we, I wouldn't have thought of, but um, when you look at the recipe, it's it's shockingly easy to do. And when you read the letter to the editor, actually in the, in the tomatoes chapter, it starts off with each summer, and though most ingredients these days seem seasonal, uh, I think I'd like to shift away from that word and call them, you know what is it, annuals, like in flowers? You know, mm-hmm. they, they are reoccurring because seasonal is it's like once you do it, it's done. And, and, you know, there's something about having these in your hand that it's not going to be done. It's going to be, you know, revisited every year and updated. Absolutely. And, you know, I think obviously we're, we're fans of using things at their, you know, at their height and their prime, as are the authors. And uh, But I think it's also really um wonderful, particularly in tomatoes and strawberries, which which are so seasonal, for lack of a better word, um, specific to time of year. Um, both authors did a great job of sort of providing um, tricks for getting around such a short window and sort of, you know, approaching the question that I think a lot of us do of, well, I really like to eat tomatoes. I don't really want to have to just eat them one month a year. Is there a way to, to, to make that you know, stretch a little bit, um, whether it's, you know, preserving them or in, in Susan's case, sort of saying, well, you know, if you're not getting them at the farmer's market, here are recipes that you can actually use grocery store tomatoes for better or for worse. And they're actually going to serve a purpose here and it'll be delicious. So I think that was a really, um, sort of rooted in the reality of most of us, as opposed to the dream that, you know, everything comes from the farmer's market all the time, which I don't know, for me, that's just not how I can live all the time. I wish I could, but, um, so it's nice to have that, that option there. And we forget about, you know, 95% of the geographic country who doesn't have a farmer's market in their backyard, who doesn't live in New York City, or in San Francisco, and does you know almost virtually all of their shopping at one large supermarket or another. It's it's something we don't talk about enough in food publishing, but you know I think a lot of a, a lot of publications and media and cookbooks do them a disservice because they require ingredients they just can't get. So then you don't cook the recipes, and you don't subscribe, or you don't buy the book. And we're really trying to uh, to make it as as accessible as possible in, in, in anywhere that you can find a uh, grocery store. So Susan's a good example. She was cooking 
many of her recipes with her beautiful little uh, farmer's market strawberries, and she was cooking the same recipes with uh, the stuff she picked up at the supermarket that are, you know, giant and sturdy and and not as flavorful, not as intense, and she was figuring out ways to, to make both work in the same recipe. So we're going to actually take a quick break, but I just got a text from Nick um, asking if he can swear, and I don't mean to be all James Lipton, but Nick, what is your favorite swear word? <laughs> can I get back to you after the break? That you can. That you can. We're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Bread Hook, Brooklyn. The beige sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Joe, am I back? I am back. I got the thumbs up. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Sorry, I just got so into the music. Again. We were jamming. And always, thank you, Ben from Cookies, the band, uh, for the theme music. It always makes me want cookies. Um, so, Nick, you still on the line? Yeah, I'm sorry. Fantastic. And do we have Susan? We do. I'm right here. Wonderful. A real live author. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, we were just talking about, you know, again, how important it is for the author to, uh, you know, have brought forth the ingredient that they really love um, because it brings such life and such personality to these books. And I read the, the letter to the editor passage, the first two paragraphs from Strawberries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you being an author yourself, having written, you know, a cookbook and a hosting book, how yeah. important is something like this for you that, you know, isn't overtly picture, 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 but carries such personality? Um, well, it was really uh, fun for me because, you know, it's a content, content is king with these books, you know? Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of old fashioned cookbooks and I actually have quite a collection of these smaller little books that I have always had a really uh, a fond place for in my heart. And so I was very, um, I actually thought it was going to be more art-driven when, when Nick first spoke to me about it, but when I heard you know, more about what he was after, I was actually really into the idea of it just being 
you know, completely content-driven and not art-driven. Well, I mean, there's art in the final product. Oh, itself. absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, when I say art, I mean photography. Exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I went to your... Let's talk about that, Mr. Photographer. <laughs> how, do you, hey. how do you feel about a publication devoid of photos? Because it know, comes up a lot. You know how I feel about it. I want to do a book with you. But, you know, <laughs> there there is an image in my head that's created by the content. You know, you don't always need that fresh strawberry, you know, that dripping wet exactly. tomato in front of you to have that resemble or kind of project what you want. And again, with these recipes, when you even just read the recipe itself, you know, uh, even strawberry compound butter, Mm -hmm. you already know what it tastes like. You already Mm -hmm. know what you want it for. Mm -hmm. And you already know you got to go get tomato. I mean, strawberries right right away. (laughs) So images are important for certain things, but you know, so are words. Right. Well, I was going to say, I think that the recipes have to be, um, even that much more descriptive than they might otherwise be, especially with something simple like, like let's say, uh, the strawberry tartines. Okay, make some toast, put some ricotta cheese on it, put some strawberries on it. If you had a photograph, you almost don't need the recipe, but without, um, without the photograph, you know, you really need to describe everything well and make sure that, you know, the, the reader is really understanding exactly what they need to do and how everything should look in the final um, dish. Well, how does that change a recipe? Because on frozen desserts, you have roasted strawberry basil mm-hmm. frozen yogurt, which mm-hmm. could just as easily been strawberry basil frozen yogurt. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that single descriptor, that adjective, mm-hmm. you know, really changes the recipe, mm-hmm. not just in flavor, but in, mm-hmm. in its pronouncement. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does it change the re- Well, as I, was, I think also the, he- the head notes become really important, too, because, um, you know, I mean, some especially in some magazines, because they're short of space these days, they just do away with the headnote altogether because they have the, the photograph and they figure, well, we don't have room for a headnote, so we're just going to leave it. To me, a headnote's very, very important for a recipe. It you know, gets you in the mood. It tells you why you want to make it. It tells you, uh, you know, a little fun fact about the recipe or, you know, why it's a good recipe and why you should try it. And I think they become even even more important in a book like this when you don't have the enticement of the of the photograph. And, and as I said, with the recipes themselves, I think they just need to be um, very complete and very descriptive. Well, let's talk head notes. Your favorite, <laughs> most charming head note from strawberries. You're asking me which is my most charming? Well, I, you, you I, I treat them let's like see. children, not that I have any, and I, I love them all um, equally. I don't know. Nick, can you help me out here? What was my yeah. most charming head note? This is your chance, Nick, to use a, cur- a curse word. Just <laughs> let it no, out. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It's been a while. Um, Susan's written like 50 more recipes since then. No, out of her, not really true. Out of her brain, it should be. <laughs> um, I think the head notes, particularly I, Susan, I thought you did such a wonderful job of of weaving together sort of anecdotal where these recipes came from, whether uh-huh. they were historical for you. Um, like I remember the freezer jam, you sort of give credit to right. a former um, staff, someone who'd worked with you, you yeah. got it from their relative and things like that. And mixing that also with like little tidbits of useful information. Yeah. This is what yeah, to I'm big with. on. Um, I, and I may have done this more than, than some of the other authors. I'm, I'm usually less about a really, hugely personal story and more about, um, you know, why you should make the recipe and, and, you know, maybe kind of warn people of any pitfalls or, or as you say, just useful tips. I think, you know, that's the place to give people um, a tip 
for in a recipe and um, I think it should sort of tell you, it's a little story about the recipe, I think, and it tells you um, everything you need to know in advance. And Susan's it. also very... I got mine. I, I, I got mine. Um, <laughs> you got Susan, it. you remember the, the strawberry tart tartan? That's the yeah. one I was going to say. <laughs> I'm looking, yeah, that was a good one, and we it? fought a little bit about that, too. <laughs> Wait, um, what did I how say? How many times did you have to make it? Oh, many. <laughs> Maybe ten. <laughs> Quite and even in the things. end, the the recipe is absolutely delicious. And her in her head note, she does something that uh, many people will never do, and and is honest about the fact that it's not absolutely perfect. She tried getting just the right amount of of right. thickness with you know not too not too runny, not too juicy, right. not too cornstarchy. And it's I think the last sentence of it is something like you know this. Still on a juicy side, but if you're like me, you won't mind, which I think well, is... Well, it's exactly like that, Nick. If you're not reading from the book, <laughs> you have a really good memory. To it. That's exactly what it says. <laughs> and it also says the gamble paid off. And, exactly. You know, you know, and I wanted to explain. I don't want people reading that recipe and, and saying, um, you know, hey, wait a minute, tart tartan should never have thickener, and you, or you would never make a tart tartan with strawberries. So that's like, for me, you know, as a cook, I want to make sure that... You know, I'm saying, look, I know this isn't traditional, but I'm doing it anyway, and, and here's why. So, I mean, I, I didn't even tell anybody who Susan was, aside from just a wonderful author, you know, mm-hmm. cookbook, hostessing book, uh, food editor at, you know, Martha Stewart when it started. You know, right. you were the first. And, That's correct. You know, and how important, though, is it for you, you know, as an author, you know, mm-hmm. and as, a, you know, having a little book to be bookended, to be something that's on the shelf, to be collectible. Because I was at the party where people were hand-stitching, mm-hmm. and just to have their hands on paper and mm-hmm. see what's on that paper and be part of that was yeah. something so special. But mm-hmm. when you receive a magazine and cookbook, not that it's anything less of a, than amazing, mm-hmm. it just didn't have the same sensation. Right. Well, I've just, I'm, I'm totally in love with this project, and even though it's only a... Uh, how many pages do we have here? Well, Actually, respectable, almost fifty pages, um, fifty page book here. It's just, you know, to me, it's just a really nice way to round out, um, you know, the publications that I have been involved in. It's just, it it feels, um, it feels eternal, even like like any larger hardcover book. And like you say, it has um, this handmade quality in every way, which um, is something that. Uh, I really like, and I mean, even some of the books that I've written in the past have been called handbooks, just because I like the idea of them fitting in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> so let's so, talk about yeah. the handicraft of these books. Um, how many how many books did everyone stitch? Everyone yell it out. Oh god, I didn't stitch any. <laughs> <laughs> well, I stitched a couple of yours. I, I think I did five. And then mm-hmm. I called it quits. Yeah, those uh, got thrown out. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but you know. Even that stitching, um, Nick. Why was having you know these Baker twine bound things, you know these books? Why was that detail so important? Because we're total masochists and <laughs> <laughs> don't want to do anything the easy way. Um, gosh, this has been by far the, the the most challenging and and rewarding and frustrating. Um, part of the whole project is the fact that we decided really stubbornly that we wanted the books to be stitched. Mm-hmm. And 
you can stitch a book many ways. There are machines that do it. Um, some people do it by hand. They do very, you know, there's all these Japanese styles of stitching that are super intricate and complex. And we wanted to, to get somewhere and hit somewhere in the middle where they were made by hand. And I don't know why, but at the time I was really obsessed with Baker's twine. Um, that you know, striped, usually it's red and white stuff that you will get your uh, cake wrapped in at the bakery. Um, I wanted that to be the binding, and um, and the only way to do that is by doing it by hand. No, no machine will, uh, no book binding machine will will take that thick of string. Mm. So we talked to a bunch of experts. We talked to people who bind books. Everyone said that you're absolutely crazy. Um, you'll you know take you years to bind all these books and don't do it and don't do it. Um, they were partially right and they were and they were partially wrong. I mean, we're really happy with where we where they ended up. Uh, I think it feels a little bit more handmade, a little more special than if you just saw a couple of staples in the binding. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, we probably had to throw away twenty twenty five percent of our books oh, uh, because they weren't much? perfect enough. Yeah, and that sucks because that's money in the drain. Um, we can always make more, but <laughs> it's uh, it's a real labor-intensive, really slow, very expensive product. Uh, I don't want to tell you how many tens of thousands of dollars we spent on stitching the books. It's a lot. Well, and uh, I'm not going to talk about one thing which was talked about a lot prior to the books coming out, which is Kickstarter. And just uh-huh. wanted to say that, obviously, there's support for you doing something the hard way uh, from the response that you got on Kickstarter. So that, that should be very noted. But let's talk about how you are for the author first, too. You know, the, the way that authors get paid um, is, is distinctly different than most of the rest of the publishing industry. And why that fact? Well, I, I am one of those authors. Um, I'm working on books, and I develop recipes and write stories for magazines or whoever, and you get paid usually a fixed amount up front, and that's the end of it. You turn in your work, you're done, you probably won't see another check, or you might get, you know, second half of your advance after you turn the book in. Um, it's usually a decent amount of money up front, but there's there's rarely any uh, long-term payout there. Cookbook authors especially almost never see royalties from their books. They just don't sell enough copies. We're not well, some of some King. of them do, but that's a some do, but a lot percentage. of them don't. If, you, yeah. if they're on the Food Network, they get royalties. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. I'm sure we have to raise things in royalties, but uh, folks like us who you know are not super super famous, um, it, it's really hard to, to get paid for your work in the long run. I was trying to do something that. Um, approached how you pay authors a little differently. You don't pay them as much up front, but as the series grows, as we print more books, as we go back to print on, on books, we will continue to pay authors, uh, not after the books are sold, but, but right immediately upon, upon printing. So then the rest of the onus is on us to sell those books. The author doesn't have to worry about, you know, if we printed too many or if they're not going to sell, and um, they just get paid right away. And then and the rest is, is up to us. Well, I mean, looking ahead, uh, you know, Short Stacks has the next lineup already announced. We do. We're working on three more books. Um, Grits, Buttermilk, and Sweet Potatoes will come out late fall, early winter. Um, and hopefully more uh, after mid-fall, that. Mid-fall. What? 
this fall. <laughs> this fall. This fall. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. And again, with the turnover time, you know, it's what, four to five months, you know, once you talk to an author, start developing recipes and the book's out. I mean, that is, you know, so, half shorter than that. Yeah. I mean, Weeks. That, that we'll is, get it down to days. <laughs> hours even. Um, I mean, that turnover time is ridiculous. Uh, it's usually over a year, if not, you know, year and a half to two years for most cookbooks to be conceptualized and then on the shelves. So the speed in which you bring these things uh, still keep them, you know, current. Uh, not that they ever go out of fashion. The first round was a little slower. I think we got recipes and manuscripts uh, late May, early June. The books were finished, printed in August, and, and finished stitching by beginning of September. So Most, mostly slower because of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say that. Yeah. Um, the next round, the books are due, uh, what, technically tomorrow? Yeah, right today? now. Well, hey, uh, authors, today. if you're listening. So if you guys are listening, yeah. um, get back to work. Uh, and then we will um, uh, have about three or four weeks to edit and lay out and do the, il- the illustrations, uh, which we haven't mentioned yet, and um, uh, get them to the printer. So those will be ready to go by definitely you know, before the holiday shopping season starts in November. I can't. So say will the hand binding continue, Nick, as the series? It's a great question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're we're great question. We're 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 working on finding a easier way to have them still still bound. Right. I still would be yeah. very disappointed if, if you got your book and just had a couple of staples in the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's no way we can do it exactly the same way that we did the first time. There's just right. too much margin for error and we right. can, you know, throw out the books that don't look great. Yeah. And we'd probably have to raise the price because it's right. it's gotten prohibitively expensive. Right. And the price right now is not yeah, it's important to us that these are uh, these are things that you can sort of impulse buy. I mean, we want people to again going back to the accessibility point. Um, it would be a shame for our authors to do such lovely recipes and then people be discouraged by a higher price point. So, so let's talk about because I, I wouldn't want to go without mentioning the illustrations, Nick. Um, you mentioned the idea of this, you know, being a gift that you can wrap in paper, but it itself is already wrapped in such wonderful, you know, paper it that, is. That, that you don't really need to do much to give this as a gift. Can you explain to me how important, you know, the, the you know, exterior versus interior illustration design were? Well, we wanted them to convey this uh, without being too kitschy um, and heavy-handed. This like mid-century. American cookbook aesthetic. Um, a big part of the inspiration for these is uh, those pamphlets that consumer packaged good companies and appliance companies would put out back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Back then, there weren't many food magazines, if any, um, and there were cookbooks, but they were they were more few and far between. So, a lot of people got their recipes, you know, when they bought a, a bag of flour, when they bought a new stove. And it came with a little pamphlet, and people used those. Um, they were completely branded marketing materials, but uh, they became an important part of our you know, American food culture. And those have largely gone away. You can probably still find some you know, Betty Crocker pamphlets at the grocery store checkout lane, but um, they're not taken quite as seriously as, as they used to be. So we tried to convey that idea in 
in how they look without it looking like some some retro thing. So a little bit modern, a little bit old. Tall, um, a tall order for our art director, uh, Rotem, to, to to take on, but she she nailed it. I think so. I was especially thrilled with my cover and the illustrations inside as well. Well, I mean, I really can't say enough about this other than people should get these in their own hands because I'm not sharing. Yes, <laughs> <You know>? please. <laughs> um, and next stitching party, if you do decide, I'm sure you'll have a much larger response because I can't see a world without these kind of books existing. Um you know, in in the near future, in the long future, it's really important to have something that's so homemade in all aspects of the world. That short stacks editions is is doing a great thing, making sure that path still exists. So, uh, thank you all for being on the show. Shortstackeditions.com. You can get all the info. You can order books, uh, pre pre order the next round of books. Maybe even be crazy and pitch these folks about the next single subject that they should look towards. I myself am signing off of the food scene. Uh, I'm going to take a little break for a couple of weeks. Getting married, going on honeymoon. Yay! So, Congratulations. Thank you. So rather than next Tuesday at 3. Saturday. Thank you. Um, I'll see you all sometime in October. But again, Short Stack Editions, HeritageRadioNetwork.org, food scene, signing off. This is Michael Harland, Urkel, hoping to have you back here some Tuesday at three. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.